Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. It is Monday, November 16th, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. In just a little bit, we're going to sit down and have a chat with this week's guest, wildlife photographer Jeff Kramer. But before we do, I want to thank a handful of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. If you visit www.patreon.com slash talk nerdy, you can support the show as well. You can sign up to be a patron and support each and every episode of Talk Nerdy in any amount that you'd like. 50 cents, $50. It all helps. And this week, I want to thank our top patrons, Elena Scott, Phil T-Bear, Timothy Glover, Ken Pfeiffer, Brian Holden, and Jeff Sewell. Thank you guys so much. You can also visit carasantamaria.com, click around, enjoy, and you'll find other ways to support the show, not just monetarily, but, you know, by telling your friends, by rating and reviewing on iTunes and Stitcher. I say it every week. I sound like a broken record, so we can move on. Um, this week was a really exciting week for me, and the reason that the show is going up a little bit late today is because this past weekend, I was at the first ever SciComm camp, or West Coast Science Communication Retreat, that was organized by Jason Goldman, Sarah Kurtz, Curtis, sorry, Sarah Curtis, and myself. And the three of us uh, worked pretty hard for the past few months to get everything going, and we had about 50 individuals 
who work in various aspects of science communication come out to Malibu for the weekend and we did workshops and we learned a lot from each other in unconference sessions. We had a lot of fun and it seems like it was a big success. So we're very excited about it. We're hoping to be able to do it again next year and expand. So if anybody is interested who, uh, you know, if you work in science communication or you just want to uh, bone up on your science communication skills. Hopefully uh, next November we'll be doing it again and I'll be able to share some details with you on the podcast. But if you're interested in following the fun, you can look up the hashtag on Twitter, SciComCamp, and there should be a storify of all of the tweets together so you can see what we learned and what we shared over the course of the weekend. All right, guys, without any further ado, I am pleased to welcome to the podcast this week wildlife photographer Jeff Kramer, who will be discussing what it's like to take amazing photos in the Amazon and also how ecotourism can support the local communities there. So here he is, Jeff Kramer. Jeff, thank you so much for coming all the way up here to my humble uh, dining room studio in Hollywood. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, haven't moved yet. You were wondering about that. I'm sure people listening maybe. And actually, by the time this airs, I wonder if I will have moved. But as of right now, we're still recording in my dining room. Um, Killer is keeping you company in your lap. He's your spirit animal today. Yeah, this is my comfort animal. Your comfort animal. Um, and... So I'm excited to have you on the show because if you guys remember, think back to early on when I had Phil Torres on the show and I also had Aaron Pomerantz on the show. And both of those guys were talking about the crazy adventures that they had had in the Amazon. Now, I've gotten a lot of comments and questions from people saying that that's so cool. The days of Darwin feel like they're dead. People can't just be naturalists anymore. People can't afford it. Or or if you're not a you know, university-trained scientist, you don't feel like you're allowed to go. So I thought it would be cool to have you on the show, Jeff, to kind of answer some of those concerns. So go ahead and tell everybody what it is you do. Well, I do a lot of things. Um, I'm the marketing director for Rainforest Expeditions. It's an eco-lodge in the Peruvian Amazon. I'm also a wildlife photographer down there. And I also do something called gigapixel photography, like high-resolution imagery and stuff like that. Cool. So you kind of use both of those jobs to your advantage, right? Because mm -hmm. you're down there anyway working with rainforest expeditions. You also have the opportunity to take photos. What are some of the things that you like to take photos of? Well, we have a lot of amazing stuff. We've, uh, you know, we have the normal animals, jaguars, capybaras, peccaries, macaws, parrots. But then we have cool new species that we've discovered, the decoy spire that Phil discovered. We have the Donald Trump wigs caterpillar. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, we've had, we've had uh, the web tower structure, a new species of spider that was also discovered down there. So I like discovering, I like photographing new species as well as the normal animals out there. So you also, I would assume, like to do some macro photography, really small things, bugs, caterpillars. Yeah, we do a lot, of, a, bug, but... a lot of macro photography. Cool. And That's awesome. Most of the big animals have already been found and photographed. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for new species, macro photography is where it's at. Yeah. And I also assume that with a bigger animal, maybe not like a capybara, but with a jaguar, for example, most of the photographs that you're going to see come from camera traps, right? No, they have the jaguars right out on the river. Really? Yeah, so you yeah. can, if you have a nice zoom lens, you can actually capture. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I shoot with a 600 millimeter. I also have an 800 millimeter. That's but amazing. But you can shoot it with like a, you know, a handheld camera. You're, they're just right there in front of you. <gasps> Is that scary for people? Um, no, because we're in a boat on the river. 
and they're a little bit higher up on the riverbank, so it's not dangerous. Gotcha. Yeah. So before we dive deep into your role, I want to know more about what Rainforest Expeditions is. I know that Aaron and Phil both work with you guys when they're down there doing the science that they do, but a normal person who's not a scientist can do that too, right? Right. Rainforest Expeditions is uh, three ecologists in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon, and it's for tourism purposes. So anybody who has an interest in visiting the Amazon jungle and seeing cool wildlife, they can come down and Take a trip with us for three days, five days, seven days, as long as you want. And so why do why tourism in a place that is, you know, we think of as being deforested, we think of as being endangered, we think of as maybe people entering the rainforest as, I don't know, in, initially kind of not a good idea? Well, we use tourism... Tourism is a form of conservation actually out there. So that's a really important thing that we do. We do a lot of conservation. So the rainforest is, you know, being destroyed slowly. Mm -hmm. And it's under threat from gold miners, from loggers, illegal timber harvesting, from drugs, right? They're growing coca leaf out there and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, also of hunting. People hunt the animals out there and eat them. Mm -hmm. So if we can, if we can show people that, you know, ecotourism and bringing tourists down there is a form of, you know, it's adding value to the standing rainforest. So we can make money by keeping the trees standing instead of cutting them down and destroying everything. So the tourism helps save the rainforest. And gotcha. That I mean, that makes sense. You know, it's it's is is the money that's being made then going back into the community? Is there really a community? I guess I think most of us don't know much about exactly what goes on in these areas of the rainforest are there whole villages of people who live there yeah so where where we're located we're located in madre de dios in a place called tambopata and that's in southeastern peru on the brazil peru bolivia border and out there in the amazon in general there are lots of indigenous tribes and the one that we work the closest with is called the saeha and they're in our lodge called posada amazonas so we had one lodge called the Tambopata Research Center. After that was built, we decided to expand. And so we approached the native community and said, hey, you know, would you like to do business with us? And it was kind of hard to, to start that whole process mm, because sure. we had to convince them to stop hunting on their land. And they said, well, we eat these animals. This is how we survive. And we had to explain to them that if you stop hunting, all these tourists will come and they'll, they'll see the rainforest and stuff like that. So we finally convinced them, and then we built a lodge called Posada Amazonas. And when the tourists come there, you know, they pay their money, and then we divide that money up. 70% goes to them, and 40% goes to us. So they're the owners of the lodge, and then we help manage it. Oh, so so you give the majority of the money to the actual owners. They own the lodge, own and the then lodge. you just run it within their village. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. And so now what do they eat? They eat normal food. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they eat normal food, but there are also areas outside of the their reserve area where they can hunt and stuff like that. So, you know, there's the regular land where they can hunt. Then there's like a buffer zone. Mm -hmm. And then there's our lodge that's a protected area. And then the further in you go to the jungle, the more protective it becomes. Gotcha. So, so within your lodge area, it's protected not only to kind of increase the flora and fauna there so that there's more... Uh, density of these different species, but it's also probably safer, right, for everybody that there's not active hunting going on. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be safer, yeah. 
And so what do you, when, when you say that you have these three lodges, what does that actually mean? So we have, so we're in, like I said, southeastern Peru, mm-hmm. and there's a river called the Tambopata River. So on that river, so how you get there is you fly into a city called Puerto Maldonado, and that's just a little jungle town in the middle of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Then what you do, you take a bus for about 45 minutes, one of our buses that we own, that will take you to a river port. From that port, you take a boat to, for about 45 minutes to the first, first lodge called Posada Amazonas. At that lodge, you have all sorts of cool stuff to do. You have towers, you have salt licks where you can see animals, we have guides, we have trails, and you can wander around and see everything. And so if you are a tourist, if you want to go on this kind of ecotourism tour, is that, do you go to all three lodges or do you pick and choose how you want to do your adventure? You can pick and choose how you want to do it. Some people just go to Posada Amazonas, some people go to Refugio, some people go to the Tambopata Research Center. So it just depends on what you want to do. Oh, so there's a research center down there too. Yeah. So besides Posada Amazonas, we have the next lodge upriver, about three and a half hours upriver from the port. It's called Refugio Amazonas. That also has like a 40 meter canopy tower, more clay licks. There's a harp eagle nest out there that I recently photographed. All sorts of stuff, all sorts of trails, all sorts of activities. There's an oxbow lake where you can see giant river otters. That's at Posada Amazonas. And we have an oxbow lake at Refugio. Then all the way up the Tambopata River into the Tambopata National Reserve, there's the Tambopata Research Center. And that has 18 rooms out there. And it's an active research center with scientists who are studying macaws. So we have the largest clay lick in the world out there, where every morning dozens of macaws come down to feed on clay to get salt to uh, supplement their diet. I feel like I've seen photographs of some of those macaws, maybe that Phil probably posts. Uh-huh, yeah, he posts them all the time. And maybe even, you know, um, friend of the show and friend of mine and uh, nerd brigader Jason Goldman was just recently there, mm-hmm. right? He was like, he literally just got back a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah, Were yeah. you guys together there? Because uh-huh. you said you're uh, a little jet lagged. Yeah, I was with Jason, yeah. Oh, we great. spent about a week out there, I think. And did he get to see the macaws? Uh huh. Yeah, I feel like I might have seen a, a Everybody photograph. Everybody gets to see the Everybody macaws. Everybody gets to see the macaws. <laughs> I think I might have seen a photograph of that too. I, you know, I've I've talked to um to Phil and Aaron before about potentially going down, and I think my concern was always maybe similar to others like me who are more into glamping than camping, which is how roughing it am I going to be roughing it when I'm down there? I mean, I love the idea, obviously, of being in the rainforest and being one with nature. But at the same time, I think that popular media has shown rainforest expeditions as being incredibly, incredibly dangerous as everybody, you know, getting flyborne diseases and drinking the water and getting ill and being eaten alive by giant ants. I mean, how safe are these lodges? It's super safe. It's the exact opposite of what you just described. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So we have we have boats with 75 horsepower outboard motors. We have satellite telephones on the boats. And you go into the lodge, and it is like glamping. I mean, they're beautiful lodges, honestly. Nice. And they have, you know, nice beds. We, we serve really good food, a mixture of Peruvian food. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's lasagna at night. Good breakfast. All the guides are trained. They're professional guides. Most of them have degrees in tourism from mm-hmm. Peruvian schools. And they speak English. They speak French, German. Japanese, Spanish. So, I mean, it's it's very, very well-run place. It, it sounds a little bit like uh, the Christmas vacation that I took a couple of years ago to the Galapagos, where I knew that it would be 
rougher than, you know, staying in the four seasons, of course, but it was definitely a good balance for me of being in nature and feeling like I was safe at night mm-hmm. and like I wasn't going to be, you know, eaten by a jaguar. Yeah, no, you're totally safe where we are. It's it's always safe. It's it is kind of like glamping. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're they're really nice places. And so cuz you will stay out there for long stretches of time, won't you? Yeah, like sometimes I'll stay out there for a month. Yeah, a month yeah. straight. Mm-hmm. And so how how what percentage of your year would you say that you spend in the Amazon? Wow, so during Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocócica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocócica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocócica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocócica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocócica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. In high season, I'd say I'm there. I'm there a lot in high season. So from March until November, I'm there a lot. Probably I'm out there every other month. Okay, so kind of the summer months with a little mm-hmm. bit of spring and fall tacked on. Yeah, so the, the dry season. That's the dry. I see. So, so during what we think of as the winter months, it's a bit rainy and maybe less mm-hmm. comfortable to visit. It's always comfortable. Okay, but there oh, can there can just be some rain. I see. So people do go during during the oh, yeah. rainy season. Also, mm-hmm. gotcha. Is there a difference in the animals that you'll see and in, in kind of the um, the flora out there when it's wet versus when it's more dry? I would say maybe a little bit. Sometimes there are more frogs in the oh. wet season and stuff like that. Maybe a few more insects might be out there, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's kind of the same all year round. And so when you talk about these boat expeditions, mm-hmm. you take these boats upriver, you were saying, from the port city, mm-hmm. kind of to go to the three separate lodges. Three hours on these boats, it's not just a trip to the next lodge, is it? It's actually an experience yeah, in it's and awesome. of itself. Yeah, it's totally awesome. So we're always spotting wildlife on the side of the river. We have caimans, we have jaguars, capybaras. Peccaries, all sorts of bird life is out there on the side of the river. Just, just tons of stuff. I mean, it's full of life out there. That's awesome. Yeah. When people are there visiting and you're there at the lodge with them, do you offer them any photography classes? Yeah. So a lot of times I give photo tours out there. Oh, cool. So I've been doing photography for about 14 years and I know a lot about it. So people can come with me. They can use all my equipment, the macro lenses, the big lenses, and I take them out and we pretend like we're natural photographers. <laughs> and uh, it's fun. It's cool. We get a lot of good shots. And I teach them about photography, about Photoshop, how to use all the equipment, the whole thing. So I take it you were a photographer before you were um, an Amazon enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. I've always loved photography since I was really young. Probably I picked up my first camera geez, probably 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, what happened is I, I started in photography. It was always a, always a hobby of mine when I was traveling around. 
And then I, I owned a website for a long time and I did e-commerce for many years. I sold my website to an investor and then I thought, what am I going to do now to make some money? Mm-hmm. I thought I like photography. I felt I'm pretty good at it. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll go pro. And I, I worked hard. I made connections and it all worked out. So now I'm a photographer. And so when you first went uh, pro, when you first started actually making money as a professional photographer, what kinds of things were you taking pictures of? So what I did is, right, I'm a businessman as well. Mm-hmm. So when you want to start a business, you have to have something that differentiates you from the rest of the crowd. And for me, that was gigapixel photography. So when I sold my business, I had some money and I thought, how can I spend this to like in the right way? How can I make a good investment? So I went up to Florida and I bought a, a gigapixel camera. And that's like a robotic camera that can take like huge panoramas. So it'll take like a grid pattern of photos from left to right. Then I'll take those photos and I'll put them in a computer and stitch them all together. And it'll be a really high resolution photo that you can zoom in and out of and explore. Oh, very cool. So that's what everybody said, right? Yeah. So it's cool. So people heard about me and they heard about what I was doing. So they invited me out to the Amazon and said, hey, why don't you take pictures of the macaws, of the claylick? but all in gigapixel high res. I said, sure. So I went out there. I did that. People loved it. And they said, if you can do whatever you want out here, just tell us what you want to do. You can do it. I said, I'll try photo tours. So I started doing the photo tours. And then I have like a business background. They said, why don't you be the marketing director? Because I know about e-commerce, building businesses, all this stuff. I said, yeah, cool. I'll do it. So I've been working there for about five years now. Oh, that's great. Doing, doing the marketing. So how big is this enterprise, Rainforest Expeditions? Like how many people work there? I'd say we get about, we have about 100, probably over 100 people working there. Really? In all three lodges, yeah, at least. So because you've got what we think of as traditional kind of hospitality work, right? People running the lodges mm-hmm. the way you would run a hotel. And you've yeah. got people working in the kitchen. And you've right. got people, you know, cleaning and all of that. And mm-hmm. then you've also got... I'm assuming some people who are there to interact with the sort of native individuals. Mm-hmm. We have all the guides. And you have all the guides. We and so the are guides. these people who are, come from the area? At Posada Amazonas, the guides are from the native community. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, so they, they work there. They do the guiding. They work in the kitchen. They manage the lodge. They even have a marketing guy who works in Lima who helps with the marketing for that lodge. Then we have other guides from Cusco and Puerto Maldonado who work there. And they're all from the local area, basically. You were saying before that a lot of your guides speak, you know, English, uh, Spanish, French, Japanese. What, what is kind of the mix of people who decide, hey, you know what, I want to go down to the rainforest and spend some time? Do you find that it's mostly Peruvians or people from the nearby area? Is it mostly, you know, people from the West? It's mostly uh, people from the United States, Europe, who come down there, people that speak English, England, France, Germany, United States, Canada. Interesting. And so it's not a lot of people who are actually from the nearby area. No, not really. It's mostly foreign people. That's that's crazy to me that it's because I would think, you know, I live in Hollywood and I, for example, never go to the beach. I've lived here for like six years and I think I've been to the beach three times. Yeah. It's literally right there, but I never go because it's like a foreign country to me. Right, yeah. And I wonder if that's a similar experience for people who live in, you know, Lima or live in these larger cities. They know that the rainforest is in their backyard, but just going there, it really does, I'll, I'll admit, seem like a thing that like I shouldn't be allowed to do or that I, I 
could never do without a lot of help. Yeah, no, we we provide everything that you need. All you have to do is visit our website and sign up and you got it. And so somebody who, let's say that I decide to go on a rainforest expedition because I want to learn more about the Amazon. I want to make sure that I'm making a contribution. I'm doing my help to to contribute. So I know that 70% of, of my money is going directly towards um, conservation and directly towards the native people who are living in, in that area. Um, is it affordable for me? Yeah, it's affordable. It's about, I'd say $150, $200 a night. Oh, that's it. There. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. So it's about getting the plane ticket to get down there. And then mm -hmm. once you're there, does that include everything? Like that, like going on the boat tours, going on the expeditions and that everything? That includes the whole thing. That includes transportation, food, the guide, the rooms, the whole entire thing. Oh, my gosh. That's like yeah. cheaper than Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really affordable. It's super cool. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's really cool. That's really cool. The thing is, like, we're really close to Machu Picchu. It's only a 30-minute flight from Cusco, from Machu mm -hmm. Picchu. So most of the people, they go to Lima, then they go down to Cusco, they check out Machu Picchu, then they fly out to us and spend five days, three to five days with us. Oh, that's really smart. So you can definitely take advantage and make it a larger vacation than that. Mm -hmm. um, but along the way, I, I wish, you know, that more people would think about when we go to see the world, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have the opportunity to leave the United States, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the United States audience right now, even though I'm not, I know you're not the only ones listening. In some ways, it's harder. It's harder when you live in the U.S. because we're like this giant island surrounded by oceans and we're not that connected. And so, you know, if you live in Europe, you can hop on a train and you can go to a completely different culture with different food and different language and all that. But in the United States, it's like, well, you've got Canada, you've got Mexico. And even those are pretty hard to get to, especially if you live in an area that's um, a little more remote. So we do. When you're lucky enough to travel, which can be costly and can be really time intensive, I wish that we would think about the impact that we're making and what we can learn along the way. I think that a lot of times we choose to go on vacations because, oh, the food's good or, <laughs> oh, it's got really good shopping. Yeah. And I think that being able to go someplace where, gosh, it really is a once in a lifetime experience. You're never going to experience that culture again unless you go there again and spend time there. Yeah. Um, it's, an, it's an incredible experience. What a blessing. The, the night sky, it's unbelievably dark. You can see the Milky Way out there, wow. the Southern Cross. At night, you hear all the jungle insects and stuff. That's really cool. And Yeah, we've seen those photos, right? Yeah. Everybody's seen the photos of the night sky where you can see the band of the Milky Way. Like, mm -hmm. you can really see your place in the galaxy. But I think very few people have actually seen that in person. Yeah, right. I don't think uh, Jason has seen the Milky Way before until he got out there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. That I mean, um, almost, I would say, a religious experience for people. You yeah, know a lot I mean? of people really, really get into it out yeah. there. It's really cool. I can imagine. And so for people like yourself, I mean, you went and wanted to experience it. You And you, you did go to work, but you fell in love with it so much that you decided that you wanted to stay. Does this happen sometimes where people go, oh, my God, I love it here. I want to work here and live here. Yeah, a lot of people really? want to stay out there, yeah. So a lot of people who want to spend more time, they volunteer they do volunteerism with something called the Macaw Project. So we have the real scientists who are working out there, but they always need support. Mm -hmm. So we, we train people. They can be a researcher for a week, two weeks, a month, a couple months, and help the scientists out there. Oh, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. So you can go 
what you think might just be a cool vacation, see some animals, see some things that you haven't experienced before, rough it a little, even though you're not really roughing it, um, fall in love, and then you can stay and do real science. Yeah, 100%. That's so neat. Yeah, it's super cool. And so, because this really is the model, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I mean, if, if you've read anything about Darwin, which as a listener, I'm assuming... Well, I shouldn't assume, but perhaps you have read about Darwin. You know, we think back to those days of naturalism, and most of these people weren't trained scientists. Darwin wasn't a scientist. He didn't have a science degree. He just decided, I want to see things that have never been seen. Mm -hmm. I want to hop on a boat and look at the world. I want to collect specimens. I want to draw them. I want to catalog them and bring back my knowledge so that other people can experience it too. And this we think of as being kind of a dying art, don't we? Yeah, people, I think pe- there's a big disconnect between the general public and scientists and, and what they exactly do. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, especially when you go out to the Tambopata Research Center and you can sit there and be with a scientist and they, they sit with you at dinner, right? And you can interact and talk with them, find out who they are. I think that helps people. You know, it gets them more excited about science and it connects them to more to science and nature. And really, I mean, and it's not just an artificial thing like, oh, I'm connected because I got to see this thing. It's like you're literally doing work Mm -hmm. that is potentially going to change, you know, the public's opinion about something or it's going to be published so that more people understand some sort of scientific principle. And all the science, it aids in conservation, right? Because you can't, People don't really want to save something they can't see or they can't understand. So when we're out there doing science and we can connect with the public, I think that helps conserve the rainforest. Which I think is also a really important point because, you know, for example, I bring up Jason a lot, mostly because he was just there and because um, he's been a guest on the show. Has he been? I don't think I've had him on again, but I'm, I'm sure he will become a regular guest on the show. He's one of my best friends. And he works as sort of a wildlife reporter. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a science writer who really does focus on animals, animal behavior, and sort of animals place in our ecology. And coming from neuroscience, coming from what I think of as more like wet lab science, bench science, that was always a field that was a little bit distant to me. It's never been a big focus of my journalism and my reporting, but I see through Jason's eyes how passionate he is Mm -hmm. for this area. And we talk about conservation. I worry sometimes that we talk about conservation here in the West as this very remote, oh, it's happening somewhere else. It's really sad or whatever. Maybe I can give $10 to help the cause. Instead of really seeing what's actually happening can you describe for me like what some of the the problems are in the amazon right now yeah there there are quite a few problems out Mm -hmm. there actually so i'd say the first one is illegal gold mining really that's kind of the major that and uh illegal timber harvesting okay those are and drugs right those are the three top ones in my opinion so when we say illegal gold mining they're there is evidence, and obviously people are making money off of it. So there is gold. Oh yeah, that lots can be of found. gold. Tons of gold come out of there every year. Probably, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of gold. And probably like a hundred tons come out of there each year. Where is it? Like in the dirt? Is it in the river? Yeah. So the the problem is it's it's in the dirt, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the the soil in the rivers, and it's not like you can get gold nuggets out of there. It's very fine gold. So what you have to do is they start by cutting down the trees. Mm-hmm. So they cut down all the trees, 
and then they hit it with a high pressure. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Your water hoses, and they make like a lake, and then it kind of makes a slurry. And they take big pumps. They pump that slurry up into something that looks like a water slide. And on that water slide, it's covered with carpet. Like kind of like the carpet you find on the bottom of your car. Mm-hmm. So when that, when the gold slurry is going down, the heavy particles kind of roll off, and the finer gold particles that get trapped in there. Then what they do, they take that carpet off and they shake it into a big like fifty-five gallon drum, and it gets all this these fine gold particles and dirt. So how do you extract the gold from the dirt? You pour mercury in there. So they put mercury in with the slurry. And then they throw a guy in there, and he would just with no shoes on, just in his shorts, he gets in the mercury and water and slurry. He just jumps around and mixes it up. Then that those gold particles will bond with the mercury, and that makes something called an amalgam. Then they pour it off, and you get the mercury amalgam. Then you hit it with a blowtorch, and it burns off the mercury, and you're left with gold. Jeez. Okay, so, so a lot to unpack here. So first thing that... I notice is that when I think of like panning for gold, I think of the gold rush back in the day with individual guys with these little yeah. nets. Pan- it's not like that. No, this these is are, a big industrial. These are big operations. Yeah. So you, you can have the people out in the jungle with the big, huge pumps and stuff like that. And then there are also people out on the river on small little barges who have big, huge pumps and they're pumping the dirt directly out of the river onto the shore. And then in other places, you have uh, heavy equipment mm-hmm. with big backhoes, front-end loaders, and uh, they're really going at it out there. So it's, it's, a, it's a big enough investment for these people because the payoff is big, that they're bringing in a lot of this equipment. The payoff is big relative to what they were making before. So a lot of these people come out of the mountain areas, and maybe they're potato farmers out there, or they were growing eucalyptus trees or something like that. So when they come down to the jungle and start looking for gold, maybe they'll make, you know, $75, $100 in a day. And that's really big money to them. Gotcha. And that's what they're doing. So it's a gold mine relative, quote unquote, sorry, uh, excuse the pun, but relative to some of the opportunities that exist in this area. Exactly. And, and that's problematic. So not only is it problematic because, as you said, trees are being leveled, which means there's no habitat left, right. but also it sounds like the soil and the water are being poisoned by mercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can get, uh, you know, rain that has mercury in it. Oh, my God. You can get uh, mercury in the water, stuff like that. Which is horrifying. I mean, we know, like, we remember being kids and breaking a thermometer, just that tiny amount of mercury and our parents losing their shit. Don't touch it. Don't go yeah, near yeah, yeah. it. Because it's very, very toxic. I can't imagine how toxic it must be to a small fish, to a small frog. It's toxic, but 
it accumulates. So like, let's say there's a, a small frog and maybe a fish will eat the frog. Mm-hmm. And they, if the fish eats 10 frogs, it has 10 times the amount of mercury. Then a jaguar will eat like 50 fish and a jaguar will have ton of merc- tons of mercury in it. Oh, God, and then so like sad. a human will eat a capybara or something like that. And there's a lot of, or peccary, whatever. There's a lot of mercury in that stuff. That's so sad. So, it, and it's not just, I mean, obviously for the sake of the animals, this is a horrible practice, but also the people themselves. This is not good for the local people that live there that make a living hunting on these different animals yeah, right. because they too are going to get sick. Mm-hmm. And do you think that this is just an issue of education? Is it an issue of poverty? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't believe that because mercury you can't see, yeah. right? You can't see the mercury that's inside of the fish, so they don't believe it exists. And you don't feel differently when you when you get a small dose of it. Right, you know? exactly. It's, that's how heavy metal heavy metal poisoning works. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, is it aggregates and it aggregates, exactly. And then before you know it, you're very sick. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. And and that's not the only thing that's threatening the Amazon, right? It's not just illegal gold mining. What right. else is going on there? There's stuff. Um, I would say drugs, right? Illegal growing of cocaine, of coca leaf out there. And that's because it's getting harder and harder to grow it in areas that uh, I guess the police can find it. Um, I mean, why would why would somebody want to go in? Or maybe it's just a function of there's there's land there. Yeah, there's there's land and very remote land, mm-hmm. and so they're growing it out there. And, and of course, the soil is probably very rich. Yeah, the soil is really rich, but not only do they grow it, then they process it out there as well. And so what they export isn't just a leaf, it's actual coca paste. And Oh, so they really set up shop in the middle of the Amazon, right, yeah, probably yeah. undercover. You know, it's pretty, uh-huh. not easy, but maybe easier to do that there and not get caught than to do it in the middle of a city. Yeah, exactly. You have to go, they're, they're way out in the jungle, yeah. far out in the jungle. And then they have a light planes. Sometimes you can hear flying over late at night or early in the morning and those are planes carrying drugs and then they they bring drugs up in uh in huge dump trucks they're big just big huge trucks and the trucks are filled with uh, bamboo and stuff like that mm-hmm. but inside very deep inside of this bamboo and stuff they actually have drugs in there and they bring that stuff up at night in really remote very remote places is um and maybe you don't know this but is this kind of drug farming affecting the local population like is there a drug problem among the people that are living there because farming of cocoa plants has started to occur or is this much more kind of an export business i think it's an export business gotcha yeah yeah the the local people they'll work there right mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll get money to support their families and stuff like that but I don't think there's a huge population of uh, drug users in yeah. the Amazon jungle. So the issue here really isn't so much the drugs. It's the fact that drugs are being planted. And in order to plant the drugs, you're having to clear out native plants and native animals. Yeah. And then, you know, there's violence as well. Yeah. You know, some. And also, like you said, there's like planes flying overhead. There's mm-hmm. just disturbances to this area. And then that there are the native, the native tribes are out there as well. So besides drugs, there's illegal timber harvesting, right? So lots of timber harvesters, they have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the jungle to get the big trees and cut them down and export them. And as you go deeper into the jungle, that's where all these native communities are. And it's putting pressure on these communities. And these, I mean, these are uncontacted or tribes that are out there. So these people right now are coming out of the jungle 
and it's causing a lot of friction between kind of like the the local people there and the uncontacted tribe. Nobody knows how to handle how to handle these people and what's going on. So a lot of times when people are going down the river in remote areas, they'll see like naked indigenous native mm-hmm. people from uncontacted tribes out there on the river and they'll throw them a Coke bottle, they'll throw them a machete or something like that, throw them some bananas. And when the people grab that Coke bottle and they take a drink out of it, they're going to get sick yeah. because they're so remote and so isolated. They don't have the immune system to defend against it. And a lot of people die from that. That's so sad. Yeah. And and it's something that's not being asked for, you know, and it's something that obviously there's no system in place to help with reintegration or if, if that's even what somebody wants. You nobody know? really knows what to do. I mean, yeah. what do you do with these people? Nobody really knows how to handle that and right now. And what do they want to do? You know what I mean? Like they if don't it were up themselves. to them, they probably just want to stay undisturbed. That's they, where they've been for centuries. Yeah, they kind of do. But then at the same time, they, they see people and they have a machete. And that's like a really big thing to have out there. So they want the machete. Mm-hmm. They might want to have the mosquito net. And they they want it. They don't know how to get it. They don't know what to do. Yeah, that's very So tough. And the people don't know how to handle them. So sometimes people are, are killed out there. Sometimes people are kidnapped. Uh, just a lot of... A lot of crazy stuff happens out there. And this is the direct impact that, that I guess we could call deforestation or, or logging is mm-hmm. having on the people that live there. Of course, the animals and the plants, you, you chop down the trees, they have to move. Right. They don't have anywhere to live, so they move. Exactly. We've all heard this story. This is, I think, the story that we grew up with that we learned about in kindergarten about mm-hmm. needing to save the Amazon was people are going in. They're chopping down the trees. The habitats are going away. The animals have nowhere to go. And then there's all these new selection pressures on all these organisms that didn't exist before. So if they can't adapt, they die. Exactly. Including the human organisms out there. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's one of those things that I think is so sad because we have this massive disconnect in the West. Like I'm remodeling a house right now, right? I, I'm always trying to draw comparisons to things in our everyday lives. I'm remodeling a house right now. We have opted to put in, um, instead of wood floors, we've opted to put in tile floors that look like wood. Like we want it to look like wood, but we want it to be more sturdy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the dog pees on the floor, I can clean it up and, and whatever. So we've gone for these kind of porcelain tile floors. But when looking at your choices tropical hardwoods are like it like not that that's the only choice you can buy all sorts of amazing um things now and i think at least now people are starting to become more aware of like lead certified eco-friendly building materials you know buy bamboo because you can regrow it and all of this Mm -hmm. but tropical hardwoods are still very expensive and they're they're still very kind of like sought after oh yeah what a horrible thing yeah to purchase tropical hardwood floors you know where they come from yeah like an ironwood tree, right? Ironwood trees are huge. They're beautiful. They support a lot of life. You can find harp eagles in an ironwood tree. You can find a lot of macaw nests. The people just cut them down, ship them off. Just and cut that, them down just to make some boards. Mm-hmm. And like a whole tree probably doesn't even make that many damn boards. I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're huge pretty big. trees. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, they cut them down. It's just like destroying a whole world when they do that <sighs> stuff. Yeah. It's just insane. Yeah. It's just like going in and bulldozing everybody's house in a community mm-hmm. it's like going in and just knocking down where everybody lives and being like fend for yourself man i don't know what to tell you yeah. i just need these building materials mm-hmm. and brazil nut trees as well they cut those down too everything everything gets destroyed out and there. sure they're beautiful but you know what you can buy 
bamboo, for example, let's say you want wood, you can buy bamboo, for example, and stain it any damn color. Exactly. They figured out how to engineer them so that they have any grain, any mm -hmm. beautiful thing. And you can replant bamboo. It grows really fast. It's like a, a much better way to have a sustainable wood in your home. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah, it's a lot of... I'm getting bummed out now. So I want to get excited again. Kill. I want to talk about the Milky Way again. Okay. <laughs> Is that your favorite part? Is it the stars? My favorite part of the Amazon jungle? I think it's just the adventure, huh? Yeah. The whole adventure of going out there, the whole experience, the whole entire thing, I think is really, really cool. You know, from taking the boat, going down the river, maybe just, just dealing with the environment, dealing with the different people. I find that really interesting. Seeing the different animals, being able to play with my cameras and meet different people. I think it's really cool. The whole entire thing I like. So where are you from? You're wearing an ASU shirt. Um, yep. I'm hearing a bit of an accent. Yeah, I went. I, I'm from Colorado. Colorado, okay. Yeah. And I I grew up in Colorado. Then I I went to ASU. I went to Colorado State for an undergrad in sociology. Mm -hmm. I went to Arizona State for a master's degree in construction management. And then I I got totally bummed out working at a for an engineering company in Arizona. I it's like I cannot sit at this desk forever. Sure. So I I just got up one day, I left, and I told my mommy, I said, I'm going back to Costa Rica because I used to live there when I was like a backpacker. She's like, okay. So I took off, I went to Costa Rica, and I sat down at the computer, and I was like, I'm not going back to sitting in an office. <laughs> like, I really wasn't going to do that. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I really thought about it. So my parents owned a log cabin company. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you need stain, you need nails and screws and something called chinking like silicone to put between the logs so i put that stuff on ebay and it did really well i made a lot of money in the first few days i was like oh my god i was like i'm making money selling this stain and caulking and stuff so i put more on i got more suppliers and i was like the the number one seller on ebay in my area for these specialty construction supplies so then i Kind of went off eBay. I started a website. I got to be number one on Google selling these things. And then I sold my website to an investor. Nice. And then yeah. that's when we pick up this story about and, coming out to the Amazon. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I was able to move around because everything was online. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Costa Rica. I lived in Colombia. I lived in Peru. I got to travel all over Central America and Latin America while I was managing my business from internet cafes. What is it about... Latin America that's so appealing to you? Uh, I mean, come, being a kid from Colorado and Arizona, wh what is it about um, heading south? In the beginning, it's because I spoke a really just a little bit of Spanish. Mm -hmm. I thought that I was going to go teach English in Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. after I got out of undergrad school. And then I thought, no, I don't know. I said, I wasn't sure. So I said, maybe I'll just go to, I'll head south. And I'll, maybe I'll go to Mexico or maybe I'll go to Belize. Because I, I spoke a little bit of Spanish. I thought, yeah, maybe I'll do that. And Belize is sunny. It's nice. So I started backpacking. I hit Belize. did Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. I did all of Central America. I met a girl in Costa Rica. I stayed there for a while. Then I moved to Peru. And I've been in Peru for about eight years. So I guess why do I keep staying there? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I guess it's because I spoke Spanish at first, but I guess just there's so much adventure to be it, had out I in mean, these places. I mean, it definitely places. sounds like you are yeah. an adventure seeker. Yeah, by I am. Nature, yeah, I love that know? stuff. Yeah, I love like crazy experiences and just adventure all the time. So, like, Peru has a lot to offer. It really, really does. 
So it has the coast, it has the mountains, and it has the jungle. So when you talk about the coast, it's a desert coast. So it has like some of the driest deserts in the world. And Aaron Pomerantz and I, we just got back from the desert. I don't know if you heard about that. No, I haven't yet. That's unbelievable. So we went out into the desert with some 4x4s with a Toyota Hilux. We went way out into the some called the Okukahe Desert. In that desert, we it's a very dry desert. There's no animal life. I mean, there's nothing. It's like uh, being on Mars. And it's the quiet, one of the quietest places on Earth because there's no vegetation whatsoever. So wow. when the wind blows... There's absolutely no sound. And it's not sand like you think of a desert having all this sand. It's actually like a powder, the consistency of flour. So it's kind of like walking on the moon. It's like the regolith on the moon. Wow. So you walk there and it's so quiet. And then you can move that powder with your hand. And underneath is like red and green and yellow soil. And that's actually decomposed diatoms from an ancient ocean that used to be there. That's amazing. Super cool. Then... We found uh, skulls of fossilized whales. We found, I think, two or three skulls out there, which is totally cool. Then we found a meteorite impact crater that was huge, like the size of a house. And we walked down inside of that. And we spotted it on a satellite map. We went out there and explored that. Then we found an ancient burial ground of the Paracas people. And that's like a pre-Inca culture. So we went out there. Got to take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> and this is literally just two guys like on four by fours riding around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I made a special map. and This feels like you're making it up. <laughs> no, it's 100% true. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you found an ancient burial ground. Mm -hmm. And how did they bury their people? So this is a pre-Inca culture called the Paracas people. Mm -hmm. And when they died, they would just dig a hole in the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And... They would wrap the people in a blanket, and the blanket was a finely woven blanket that's really valuable. They'd wrap the people in a blanket. They'd put them in there with pottery as well and stuff and cover them up. So the waqueros in Spanish, a waquero is a grave robber. The waqueros would come around, and they found these graves. They'd pull the people out, and they'd steal the blankets off of the bodies, and they'd leave just all these bones laying all over the place. Oh, so that's what you guys came up on is basically piles of bones? We found bones like, you know, two or 300, 400 yards long, just huge burial grounds. And you can see the blankets there. There's skulls laying all over the place. Some are young people. Some are older people. Some mm -hmm. skulls still have hair on them. Wow. So because how, how long ago would this have been? Thousands of years. Jeez. Yeah, a long time ago. That's insane. Yeah, it's the desert's so dry that it preserves the bodies really well. So it's, they're just like mummies. Their hands and arms sticking out of the ground, <gasps> all sorts of stuff. Oh, my God. That must have been incredible. How much cool. time did you guys spend out there? We spent three or four days. And did you just um, camp? Uh, we camped at first, but then like, like it was really bumpy in the car. Uh -huh. So I just drive and the car is bumping around. And uh, our beer broke open, and it sprayed beer all <laughs> over everything. And it, it messed up all our food and stuff like that. So I was like, no, let's not camp anymore. So we drove back into town. <laughs> Poisoned by beer. Yeah. That's great. Well, I guess that makes the desert a little more uh, handleable when you're out there for many, many hours. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. That sounds like so much fun. It's an unbelievable experience. So you have the desert, then, like, in the mountainous areas, you know, the mountains are over 20,000 feet tall. 
And that's just another huge adventure in itself to be out there. And then you have the jungle, right? And you can go into the jungle. Like you can go with us, right? Which I highly recommend. But like me as a photographer in the Amazon, I have the opportunities to go visit native tribes, go into mm-hmm. very remote areas. And uh, I've seen all sorts of stuff. So you've been there for years now. I mean, there must be a lot of people in different villages and stuff that just know you. Um, I mean, I, I go to a lot of different places. Gotcha. So I, I don't get to know the people. I'm only there for a few days taking pictures for maybe an NGO or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an unbelievable experience, right? Some of them don't speak English. Well, I mean, they don't speak English, but they don't speak Spanish either. They yeah. speak uh, indigenous languages called Matsigenka or Yine, which are just just languages that exist out in the jungle. And so how do you communicate? How do you tell them, I want to take your picture, is that okay? Yeah, so so I speak English, and then I'll speak Spanish to maybe a park guard, and a lot of times the park guards are from these communities, but they're a little more modernized, mm-hmm. and they were able to pick up Spanish as a second language. So then they'll translate my Spanish into Yine or Matsigenka to the person then that person will say it back in Matsigenka, then back to Spanish. Then I'll have to translate to English in my brain. <laughs> and then it goes like that. It's, it's interesting because like I asked, like I always wanted to meet somebody from a non-contacted tribe. I thought like, whoa, that would be just the ultimate. Like who are these people? What are they like? Mm-hmm. And then I sent their dinner one time and there's some guy sitting next to me. And uh, I was like, who are you? And he didn't speak and he's Spanish. And they said, oh, he's from, he's an uncontacted guy. I was like, really? And the guy's with, he's like, look, there you go. Now you have it. You met an uncontacted person. I was like, oh my God. So I started talking to him and interviewing him with the help of the park guard. And I said, so like, what's your favorite thing that you have? And they tried to talk to him. Nobody could figure it out. And so I was like, well, what's the problem here? Why can't you just ask him? He said, uh, Matsigenka doesn't have a word for favorite. Huh. So he doesn't know exactly what that means. So I said, well, what's your most important thing that you have? He said, it's my bow and arrow. Uh, I said, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, and his name was Alain, and he didn't even have a Peruvian ID card. He just came out of being an uncontacted tribal person about you know eight months before I met him. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure you learned an awful lot. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's really interesting. Did you also see, though, that there are more similarities than you thought? You know, that like people are people? Yeah, people are people. You know, people are really friendly and they like to, you know, I like learning about them. They like learning about me. And I don't know, just uh, just being friendly. Everyone's so friendly out there, you know? Yeah, they're really cool. They're really chilled out, nice people. Honestly, yeah. they're adventurers too. Yeah, they're adventurous. Yeah, you know they want to learn about the outside world, just like I want to learn about their world. Yeah, mm-hmm. the quest for knowledge on both ends, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. So you've had the opportunity to visit some of these people to take photographs, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm assuming that while you're there and you're spending the day, that you sit down and have a meal. Mm-hmm. What kinds of food do you eat when you're out there? Uh, when I'm on an expedition, I eat fish. So mm-hmm. the the rivers and the tributaries of the Amazon River have a lot of different species of catfish. Okay. So we eat stuff like that, similar. Is there anything that, like, you know, you've been served when you're eating with kind of a native culture that freaked you out a little? So the when I'm out there, sometimes the people offer me masato. What's masato? I'm not totally into that. Masato, what you do, you pay, take a piece of yuca. Okay. And yuca is kind of like potato. 
or manioc is what they call it in English. Mm -hmm. Then what they'll do, they'll chew that manioc and then it mixes up their saliva and they'll spit it into a bucket. <gasps> and then that will ferment and then they make a drink out of that and they serve it to you as kind of like a beer. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, like, it's like rude if you turn it down. But like... But uh, I'm not a fan of it. I guess... So it ferments because there's sugar in it, obviously, but mm -hmm. it must be just loaded with bacteria too, no? Ew. I, <laughs> I can't imagine you not getting sick if yeah, you drink I, that. I don't know. Ugh, yeah, no thanks. I've never, I've never exactly tried it. Okay, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Other things that they have out there is sortie. Have you heard of that? Uh -uh. Sortie is like a larva. Okay. And you can fry up a larva and have that. I could see that. I mean, Phil probably eats that all the time, mm -hmm. huh? Yeah, Phil's had it. Aaron's had it. Phil's always trying to get me to eat bugs. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. Sortie's not bad. You know what? Buttery. I, I, I want to learn how, because I know that bugs are the future, right? They're the future protein source. Mm -hmm. We're just destroying our planet. The bugs will always be around. It's We're going to have to eat them soon. So I want to start learning how to eat them. I think more in like flour for it. Like there's cricket meal, cricket flour. Mm -hmm. I think that would be an easier transition for me, but he'll like just fry up crickets and grasshoppers and yeah. stuff and be like, let's make tacos. And I'm like, yeah. I can see all their little legs and shit. Yeah. You just, just adapt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it takes a lot of adapting. I think that's uh, something that, I think that's a big thing that people learn when they're out in the jungle is how to adapt to a different environment. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets so used to their own little environment that they're in. And their routine. And their routines and stuff. And it's cool to get them out into the jungle and have them adapt to a new way of life. And once they adapt, they come back home and they're like a different person. Have you ever had people come out there who just, no matter how hard you tried to tell them it doesn't matter, had these routines that they had to stick to? You know, women putting on makeup in the morning or people trying to wear clothes that they have no business wearing in a riverboat. Everybody adapts because there's no other way, right? There's, there's no other way. You just, you will adapt. You have to adapt. Do you guys give them shit though? When people no, first come out there? Not no, me. You let them no. figure it out on their own? Yeah, you know, I'm cool with everybody. I just sit back and watch and let them take their time and each person like does their own thing. And what kinds of people come out? Just, you know, all walks of life? Do you have families that come oh, yeah. out? Do you? Yeah, at our lodges, we have families come out. We have a playground at one of the lodges. And yeah, I mean, we get everybody. We get young people, backpackers. We get small children, families, doctors and lawyers come out there. Everybody. I bet you the small children adapt the fastest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they love it. I was just with a family last week mm -hmm. who were out there and they loved it to death. You know, it's there's a lot of stuff to do for a kid out there. And then you get to come home with the memories and the photographs of an experience of an absolute lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing place. It's very cool. That's very cool. Well, we've almost taken up the whole hour already. I know wow. it goes by. So everybody's always really surprised. But before we go, I do want to ask you the same two questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Um and so keep in mind, as I'm asking, you can answer in whatever context that you'd like. So whether your answer is very personal to you and your life experience or whether it's more global and big picture, the two questions I want to ask are, one, when you're looking to the future, what is the thing that, you know, is most disconcerting to you? What keeps you up at night? What worries you the most? And then on the flip side of that, when you look to the future, what are you most excited about, optimistic about? What do you look forward to? Well, I think it's pretty bad what people are doing to their own environment and destroying the world, basically. You know, the humans are a parasitic organism. 
and that's totally unfortunate. So that I think I think that sucks. Yeah, and you you <laughs> see it firsthand in a pretty yeah, right. extreme way. Oh yeah, I've, I see everything. You won't believe it. So that's that's sad. Yeah. Um, what am I excited about? Yeah, see, that's why I ask them in that order. <laughs> so yeah. we don't end on a bummer. Yeah, note. I don't want to end on a buzzkill. But <laughs> I think what am I most excited about? I would say that, you know, a lot of people think that everything's been discovered. And that's totally untrue. There's so much that we don't know and so much that's waiting to be discovered. You know, especially on the Amazon, we've discovered a lot of new species. So, you know, the the opportunity for adventure and for learning and discovery still exists, even though it's, you know, 2015. So I think that's super cool. That is super cool. I love that. Well, so before we go, why don't you let everybody who's listening know how they can learn more about Rainforest Expeditions? If they want to go on one, where can they go? And also, how can they get in touch with you, maybe through social media, see some of your photography, all that good stuff? Yeah, you can visit us at perunature.com, perunature.com. And you can check out our website, book a tour, see all the different things we have to offer. If you want to follow me, and I really hope you guys follow me, I'm at jkramerphoto on Twitter. Cool. And I'm also on Instagram. Oh, great. So that's that's perfect. So through Twitter and Instagram, you mm-hmm. post a lot of those photographs that you oh, take. Oh, yeah, all the time. That's awesome. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me again. Of course. And everybody who's listening, thank you so much for coming back week after week. I am really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's join M-I-D-I dot com.